Hey guys, welcome to the Good Podcast. I am your host, Rob Watson. And today I'm speaking with Dr. Richard Halverson, who has worked as a GP in London for over 20 years and is a medical director of Baby Jabs, which is a company that he founded in 2007 in response to parents' concerns about vaccine safety and the demands for a greater choice for their children. He's a leading voice in this field and his book, The Truth About Vaccines, is widely respected, helping parents make a more informed choice when it comes to their children's health. So firstly, Richard, thank you very much for speaking with me today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, Rob. Brilliant. So I think it might be good just to sort of find out a little bit more about Baby Jabs and what was your reasonings behind um, starting that company? Sure. Well, initially I I trained as a GP and uh, I was taught uh, the same things about vaccines as every other doctor was taught, that they were were good, they were essential, and uh, there was no need to, to question them. Um, and so I, I didn't uh, until I had my first child a long time ago. I was a junior doctor then. He's now in his late 30s um, and I was a very young uh, junior doctor. And it wasn't so long after what was the, the whooping cough scare at that time. Uh, there was a concern about the whooping cough vaccine that was in use at that time. And so I thought, well, I better look into this a bit. And so I discovered that one of the doctors who had worked on the research into into this, uh, into this vaccine and into the scare, was working at a hospital I was working at in uh, its central Middlesex in northwest London. So I went along and had a chat with him and he said, well, yes, the research does say that uh, it, the vaccine could cause um, brain damage very rarely, but the risk of brain damage is much greater from catching whooping cough. So I took that on face value and gave the vaccine to my son. Having done all the research a lot later, I wouldn't have given him that vaccine, but there we go. Um, On from there, um, I was was comfortable giving vaccines in my practice or my nurse giving vaccines in my practice. And I was doing some medical journalism. Um, I was writing for bits of uh, medical papers and also for some some national papers as well, little snippets as GPs sometimes do about about this and that that parents and people are concerned about. And I was asked by a commissioning editor of a Sunday paper to write a feature on the MMR vaccine. And I said, why, what's wrong with the MMR vaccine? Um, I give it all the time to to my my parents, is there a problem? Well, she said, just just look into it, just research into it. We've heard some things that there might be be something going. So I followed this up and I talked to some people um, and I heard stories about children being made autistic after having had the vaccine. I thought, hmm, this is a, a bit odd. It clearly might be a coincidence. There might be nothing in it, but uh, um, I'm sure there have been good safety studies done. So I then went back to the, to the uh, NHS, to the, the, the doctors there, and I said, can you just show me the, the safety trials that were done on, on the MMR vaccine to, to put my mind at risk about these parents who think they could possibly, their children could have been made autistic from the vaccine. And uh, they couldn't really do that. The best they could show me was a six week follow up trial. So they gave the vaccine and they followed them up for six weeks and that was it. And the vaccine was introduced on that basis. So I thought, uh oh, here's a problem. We have a vaccine that we not very convincing evidence, but there is a concern that it could cause or trigger autism in some children. And we have virtually no proof of safety. So that worries me. Um, so I, I, I ended up writing a feature on this, which the, the chief medical officer in the country didn't like. Um, but there we go. Uh, we can't always do things that everyone likes. 
And, but anyway, that, that Rob, that triggered my interest in vaccines. And I thought, well, if the MMR vaccine has been introduced with so little safety trials, what about all the other vaccines? Are they any different? Is this a one-off? And so that really got me going into the whole subject and I started researching it um, and I spent hours and hours uh, in the British Library because there was no internet in those days. So I had to look up all the papers by hand and it took me as it hours and hours and hours. Um, and that led to my book. I also started offering, as that was an NHS GP still at that time. And I also started offering alternatives to my NHS patients. So because of this MMR vaccine issue, I started offering the single measles, mumps and rubella vaccines as an alternative to my NHS patients who, who, who wish to have it. Um, and also a safer whooping cough vaccine, because I then discovered that the old whooping cough vaccine that I referred to earlier on, Rob, that my son got and I got, um, and a lot of us got, um, was uh, maybe not as safe as, as was made out. So I offered alternatives to my NHS patients. Then um, it got heard about and got talked about, and I went on television every now and then talking about it, and uh, in particular, the first time that I gave a single measles vaccine to an NHS patient, GMTV, which at that time was the morning program of ITV, uh, decided to, to show it live as a sort of story. So that was fine. But uh, within 10 minutes of doing that, the phone system shut down. There were just hundreds and hundreds of people. Can we have this? How can we get this vaccine? Please, can we have it? And I thought, goodness me, it's not just my NHS patients, but there's a huge demand, clearly, for parents who want to do things a little bit differently. And so I started offering the service privately as a little bit as a sideline to being an NHS GP. And then, as you, as you said, when I eventually retired from uh, being an NHS um, GP um, in uh, somewhat over 10 years ago, I founded Baby Jabs as a unique service to offer parents a choice of vaccines, a different way of vaccinating their child if they weren't comfortable with the NHS schedule. And I've been doing that um, ever since. Um, when, just as you picked up there, you mentioned about MMR, and I, I remember seeing, I've read something that you say, that actually catching measles for children, <clears throat> excuse me, catching measles has benefits. Um, so I'd just like to hear your actual, your thoughts on that. Yes, well, as a lead into that answer, Rob, I'll just say that one of my huge concerns at the moment is that vaccines, the whole debate about vaccines, in fact, I hasten, I, I don't like using that word debate because there isn't debate. Debate is virtually not allowed. Um, but it's black and white. It's portrayed as black and white. So you're either for vaccines or you're against them. And there's, there doesn't seem to be an in-between, which is crazy because when you're looking at the benefits or risks of any vaccine, you're looking at so many different things. You're looking at the risks of the disease, how serious it is, how likely it is a child is gonna get the disease, how effective the vaccine is, and of course, crucially, how safe the vaccine is. And that's different for every single disease, it's different for every single vaccine. So instead of being black and white, it's actually very many different shades of gray. And the measles is an interesting one because measles is one of the ones we hear about a lot often. It's one of the ones we must get done. You know, it's this deadly disease that we've got to get done. And probably being part of the MMR may have something to do with that as well. So measles, interesting, a disease we all, all caught when I was a child. 
everyone got it. We didn't actually live in fear with it, though it's only fair to say that when I was a child in the 1960s, 50 to 100 children did die every year from measles. So it's not a completely harmless illness, though it's not usually serious in healthy children, because about half of those children who died would have been children with serious underlying health problems for whom the disease is life-threatening, it's only fair to say. So here we have a, a, a disease that can be dangerous, but interestingly, as you suggest, there is lots of good evidence to show that catching measles has benefits. It reduces your risk of asthma, reduces a child's risk of asthma who's caught it, reduces a child's risk of allergies, and even remarkably, maybe surprisingly, reduces a child's risk of some cancers like lymphoma and leukemia. So here we has, have a disease that's got some benefits and it's got some risks. So actually, the argument about whether or not to vaccinate is not a no-brainer. It's actually quite finely divided. I think there is a case for vaccination, but primarily not so much for the healthy child being vaccinated, but so they can't catch it and pass it on to a child who's got serious or underlying health problems, who's maybe got a compromised immune system, has maybe been on treatment for cancer, for example, for whom measles would be life-threatening. It's one of the few vaccines that the argument of herd immunity comes into it. It actually, believe it or not, doesn't apply to many, but it does to measles. And so there is a case of vaccinating for the greater good. But as you say, um, it's, it's fascinating that here is a disease that actually has benefits as well as risks. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Very interesting. So you mentioned uh, about it tends to be, it's a bit like with COVID now, the people that are dying from that, it tends to be, it's the, it's the straw that breaks the camel's back. There's many underlying health conditions and particularly with children, the ones that are dying it, there's other reasons for it. So if the average couple say, who is listening to this, who are particularly in good health and they're kind of going through like a straightforward pregnancy um, and, you know, experience with a newborn, is there like alternative pathways for them besides just this concentrated NHS schedule? You know, obviously, um, and obviously you provide that, but is it only your route to that or is if people got other actual options? Um, so, the choice about whether to have vaccines or not, it starts, well, as far as with babies, it starts in pregnancy because women are offered two vaccines in pregnancy. One is a flu vaccine and one is what is called a whooping cough vaccine. It's actually a four-in-one vaccine that contains whooping cough, but also uh, contains diphtheria, tetanus and polio. So it's not a straight whooping cough vaccine. I'm not convinced personally of the benefits for the flu vaccine. And in fact, there's, a, there's one piece of research, it's only one piece of research, but it's alarming, that suggests having the flu vaccine in the first trimester of pregnancy, the first three months of pregnancy, could increase the risk of autism in, in, in that child. It's only one piece of research, but it's, it's, uh, it's enough to cause some concern. As for the whooping cough vaccine, that's a tricky one because whooping cough is common, widespread in our community, partly because of the relative ineffectiveness of the vaccine, of course, because all children are vaccinated against whooping cough, or the vast majority are vaccinated against whooping cough. Uh, so it is a disease that children and babies could well get. 
and it is life-threatening. Whooping cough is life-threatening in the first few weeks of life. That is a time you do not want your baby to get it. And of course, that's before you could consider vaccinating anyway, because even the NHS will not vaccinate until eight weeks of age. So the idea is that by giving the mother the whooping cough vaccine, that will induce her to produce antibodies, which will then be passed on in the womb to the baby through the placenta, through the umbilical cord, um, so that the baby is carrying the mother's antibodies to protect him or her for the first few weeks of life when it is most life-threatening. So there is a, and it does seem to offer some protection. So there is a case for it. On the other hand, of course, intuitively, I quite sympathize with the view that, well, I'm told I can't eat this, I can't eat that, I can't have a drink, but it's okay to have a four-in-one vaccine with aluminium and, and, and all the rest of it, which I, 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 as I say, I sympathize with that intuitive concern. So I'm, I'm, I'm sort of on the fence with that one, but I think there is a case for it to offer that protection in, in the first few weeks of life. Then come all the NHS vaccines, and they've increased greatly in my lifetime, huge amount of the, of the diseases that we, that we vaccinate against. Um, and unfortunately on the NHS, parents have little choice of doing things differently, largely because there's a six in one vaccine, which cannot be broken down on the NHS that contains a large bulk of, of the ones that are given. They're all given together and it's all or nothing. You can't, you can't break that down and do it separately on the NHS. You can, of course, for me, but, but not on the NHS. So all children then routinely vaccinated against 13 different diseases. And as I mentioned earlier, Rob, in order to make the decision, it's not a case of, well, vaccines are good or vaccines are bad. All vaccines have some benefits and vaccines save lives, there's no question but all vaccines have risks as well. And they are different for every single vaccine. And the risk of the disease is different for every single disease. So all those different factors have to be weighed up in coming to a decision whether or not to vaccinate against a specific disease. And certainly some of the diseases I feel are vaccinating against and, and some I'm not, not convinced about. So what we usually do we offer choice and, and some parents choose the different things, but the most common thing that we probably do at baby jabs is instead of the six in one vaccine that I don't like for various reasons. I don't like the six in one vaccine, partly because it's, it is a six in one. So it's quite a large dose, large load for the immune system. Partly because it contains some vaccines that I would rather not give, and I'll come on to that and partly because it contains a high quantity of aluminium and I do have some concerns about the level of aluminium in vaccines and we might if we have time go on to talk about that. So instead of the six-in-one vaccine the vaccine we most commonly use is a three-in-one vaccine against dip diphtheria tetanus and whooping cough covering whooping cough which as I mentioned is, uh, is, is life-threatening in the first few likes, weeks of life and is, is a very unpleasant nasty disease in the first few years of life and which has to come with diphtheria and tetanus in um, um, anyway, because that's the smallest combination it, it comes in. I'd, I would suggest vaccinating against diphtheria and tetanus anyway, 
but a baby doesn't actually need to be protected at eight weeks, at eight or 12 weeks of life or whenever we start. I usually start a little bit later than eight weeks. We'll come onto that as well. So that comes along. Um, and then the main other ones in the first year of life that I think are worth considering are against various types of life-threatening meningitis. So there are four bugs that cause nearly all the life-threatening meningitis in this country. They are called meningitis B, meningitis C, Hib or Haemophilus influenza type B that doesn't cause influenza despite the misleading name, causes meningitis and blood poisoning and, and epiglottitis, a rare serious life-threatening infection, the back of the throat, and pneumococcus. And of those three, because again, it's not black and white, I think the benefit personally outweigh the risks for three of them, meningitis C, Hib, and, and pneumococcus. Meningitis is thankfully a rare disease, always was rare disease, um, thank goodness. Before any of these vaccines, most of us didn't know anyone who died from meningitis. Meningitis B, which is the one, the one vaccine I'm, I have more concerns about, is extremely rare. It is life-threatening, there's no question but it is extremely rare. The vaccine, which is relatively new, causes more reactions than most. And we're now learning that some of those reactions can be serious. There are reports of something called Kawasaki's disease, which is a serious autoimmune disease of blood vessels and chronic juvenile arthritis occurring after this vaccine. And it also contains quite a high level of aluminium. So again, putting all that on my weighing scales of risks and benefits. I'm not convinced the benefit of that one outweighs the risks. Some parents choose to have it because they want to do anything to stop their child having meningitis and some, some parents decide not to give it. So in the first year of life, ones that I feel are not necessary are rotavirus, which is a diarrhea and vomiting bug that does not kill children in this country. The worst that happens in this country is that children get so dehydrated that can happen because it can be an unpleasant diarrhea and vomiting bug that they need admission overnight for oral rehydration. That's rehydration by mouth in a hospital overnight, which is unpleasant. But children do not suffer serious consequences from this. On the other hand, the vaccine can cause serious consequences. It can occasionally cause uh, intersusception, which is when the bowel twists in on itself, which is a surgical emergency and can be life-threatening if it's not dealt with quickly. Also, if a mother is able to successfully breastfeed, then that actually offers as good protection as the vaccine, which renders the vaccine unnecessary in the first place. So breastfeeding is is, is always good for the immune system, is always good for the protection of the child. It's particularly good for rotavirus. It also offers, there's evidence that it, it does offer some protection against the whooping cough as well, which we talked about, pertussis. Another vaccine I prefer not to give, and it's what has made the five-in-one vaccine a six-in-one vaccine, it's the newest addition to the schedule, is hepatitis B. Hepatitis B is a disease that is caught through blood or sexual contact. 
So unless there is a carrier of the disease in the family, which is very rare in this country because it's a rare disease, a child cannot get it. It's not possible. Also, the vaccine has been associated in some research with a serious neurological disease called multiple sclerosis, which is a serious debilitating autoimmune neurological disease. Some research, it's only fair to say, has suggested it doesn't cause that. So, but we have the possibility that it might. So there's some adverse reactions that we'd be concerned about, but with really no benefit because a child cannot get the disease. So I prefer not to give that one, but that means not giving the six in one vaccine. And of course, that's not an easy option for parents who have only the NHS as, 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 uh, as a way forward, which is, which, is a, which is a problem, which is a problem. Polio is the only other one left in the first year of life we haven't talked about, which is a bit, which is tricky because polio is a serious disease but the risk of a child in this country catching polio is virtually zero because currently the only two countries in the world where live polio is being transmitted at all are Afghanistan and Pakistan. So unless you're traveling to those countries, the risk is virtually zero of, of, of contracting polio. So some parents choose not to give that. On the other hand, I am mindful of the fact that the World Health Organization are on the verge of eradicating polio from the world. And vaccination has certainly played a large part in that. We, shouldn't, we should be mindful of that. And therefore, if too many of us don't vaccinate, we could be undermining the World Health Organization's uh, um, efforts to eradicate the, the disease. So if a few people just don't have it, I, I don't think that's a problem. But of course, if that went into many, 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 many millions, then that could un un undermine that. And I think one needs to be mindful of that as, as well. So we're left now with three diseases, measles, mumps, and rubella, and that comes back to the MMR vaccine that we talked about earlier on. The MMR vaccine is unique in that it contains three live viruses given together. That doesn't mean it's necessarily dangerous, but it does mean that it is possible that these viruses, when injected into the body in the vaccine, could react in ways that we had not foreseen, and so could be problematic. I mentioned the very, very controversial link to autism. There is no convincing hard science that it causes autism, in part because that research isn't done. There is convincing research that it's not a major cause of autism. So I don't think for a minute that the large increases in diagnoses of, of autism that we're undoubtedly seeing are largely attributable to the MMR vaccine. I do not think that is the case. I'm sure it isn't. But what concerns me is how many parents are telling me about their child or a friend's child or a relative's child who was developing completely normally until they received the MMR vaccine and then they lost eye contact, they stopped talking, they regressed and were often 
diagnosed them with autism. And the parents are convinced that it's the vaccine that's the cause. Now, one reply to that from the vaccine lobby is that, well, that is when autism manifests itself in the second year of life. And so parents look to something to blame. So they blame the MMR vaccine because of the supposedly erroneous suggestions of a link. I accept that, of course, it could be a coincidence in some. Of course. Well, I mean, I wouldn't argue against that. But when so many parents are so convinced that it's the vaccine, I find it hard to believe that they're all wrong. Now, on a scientific level, that is a very low level of proof. It's called anecdote. It's anecdotal evidence that is really, you know, not much better than garbage. But nevertheless, I think what parents say should not be ignored. So it concerns me that it may well cause, or trigger if you prefer, autism in a susceptible child. If so, is this vaccination essential? We talked a little bit about measles, where I thought there was a case for vaccination, more for the benefit of the vulnerable child than the healthy child, but the healthy child could get seriously ill from measles. But what about mumps and rubella? Well, rubella, or German measles, as it's also known in this country, is a mild and harmless illness. The only time rubella is dangerous, it is if it is contracted in the first few months of pregnancy, and then there is a high risk of damage to the unborn baby in the womb. So it is important that a mother is immune to rubella before she starts having a family, either by catching the disease as a child, which is what used to happen, which would give her better and longer lasting immunity than the vaccine, or by having the vaccine before she gets pregnant, but she doesn't need to have it at one year of age. So what I often suggest is doing an antibody blood test as a teenager and then vaccinating then if need be. In fact, that's similar to what the NHS used to do. Before the introduction of the MMR, all they did was they gave the single rubella vaccine to girls as teenagers. Didn't worry about the boys because actually they were happy for it to circulate in the community for the very reason that I said. It would allow girls to come across it naturally as children and get natural, good, strong and long-lasting immunity. So boys don't need it, unless you argue, of course, that boys need it for herd immunity and so they can't catch it and pass it on to a pregnant woman. That is a case, but that is extremely, extremely unlikely based on the number of cases of, of, of congenital rubella syndrome that, that occurred when there was only a single vaccine. Then mumps, what about mumps? <clears throat> I'm not convinced of the need for a vaccine against mumps. Mumps in children especially is usually a mild and harmless illness. And the risk of serious complications is extremely low. It is a more unpleasant illness in adults and the risk of complications is higher, though it's still rarely serious and, and, and you know, to have a death from mumps is virtually unheard of. The problem is that 
The MMR vaccine is not very good at preventing mumps. Mumps is the least effective component. So what we're doing by vaccinating all children against mumps with the two MMRs that are given routinely, one at one year of age and one at roughly four years of age, that gives them temporary protection, probably. But then it wears off. So a lot, many, many children, probably the majority, have lost their protection against mumps by the time they become adults. So there's quite a lot of mumps going around, reported in teenagers and, uh, and young adults. And so people are saying, well, you know, you've got to have the MMR, you've got to have the MMR to prevent this. Well, actually, the large majority of these people who are getting mumps have had the MMR. Most have had two doses. There was an outbreak in Scotland not long ago that was written up in a medical journal. And 82% who got mumps had had the MMR. 67% had had two doses of MMR. So it offers very poor protection anyway. Even if you felt the need for protection, I don't feel personally there is a need for protection. But I should just mention one side effect of or one complication of mumps that is widely believed to occur. And that is infertility in men. Nearly all parents will say to me, well, doesn't it cause infertility in men? And the reason there is this belief or worry is that if it is caught by a man after puberty, then there is a one in four chance he will get a painful swollen testicle that hurts and it's unpleasant for a few days, but then it settles down. So it does affect that part of the body where the sperm is produced. So it is biologically plausible that it could cause infertility. However, it has never been proven to cause infertility and no man has ever been proven to be made infertile from mumps. So if it can happen, then it must be extremely rare. After all, before the mumps vaccine was introduced at all, there was, you know, I, I don't think, I think the fertility rates were just as good as they are, as they are now. And we all caught mumps, of course, um, because it was, it was around like when I was a child, a long time ago, we all caught mumps, we all caught measles, we all caught rubella, we all caught a lot of these, a lot of these diseases. So that is a run through all the diseases that we vaccinated against in this country. The, I suppose I should mention one more. The BCG vaccine for tuberculosis, that is now, that's one that many, many parents will remember it has been given um, as, as a teenager. You had, a, you had a, a, a test first to see whether you're immune and then you had the injection that's given into the top of your left arm and it's the one that leaves a scar. That they stopped giving it to teenagers because they realized it was pretty ineffective at that age. It took them decades to work that one out, but there we go. And they now give it to newborn babies in areas of the country where the incidence of TB, the number of cases of TB is above an arbitrary rate. So in London, that's on a borough by borough basis. In most parts of the country, I think it's probably on a county by county basis. So that's just given to those parts of the country. Benefit and risk of that vaccine, 
difficult to know if you're high risk um it's 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 worth considering and and interestingly in the in the in london um certainly the majority of children who get it are of afro-caribbean and asian background so it may be that there is a uh, genetic um, predisposition in in those people an ethnic predisposition That's really um, really fascinating to hear that whole you know run through of all the vaccines that are given in the UK. What <clears> I'm <throat> interested to ask you is what do you see as being the main driver for the side effects from the programs? Is it heavy metals? Is it the persistence of say fetal DNA, which is in the vaccines, or do you think it's something else? Well, the short answer, Rob, is I'm afraid we don't know. <laughs> um, but I'm sure also that it's a combination of things. Um, one of the big concerns, which thankfully is, was the use of mercury in vaccines that I'll briefly touch on. Mercury was added to vaccines for well over half a century. It was finally removed after some of us voiced concerns, though the, the, the vaccination, the authorities won't admit that it was removed because of any safety concerns. Um, but mercury is one of the most toxic metals, I think it's the second most toxic metal known to mankind. Um, but nevertheless, it was injected into, into babies without, without any, any problem. And it was then that research showed that it could probably trigger autism, attention deficit disorder, speech disorders, various things. That thankfully has been removed from vaccines given in most of the wealthy country, but scandalously, it is still being injected into impoverished children in poorer countries around the world. We now have aluminium, which is the, probably the most concerning added ingredient in vaccines at the moment. Aluminium is, a, uh, is an element, well, the reason it's in vaccines is it's given as an adjuvant, which means that it increases the effectiveness of the vaccine without increasing the quantity of the active ingredient. So you need less of the active ingredient to produce the same effect. Crudely, it just razzes up the immune system. Also, a lot of vaccines are made without aluminum, so one would have to question whether it's absolutely necessary or not. Um, but that is in, in the majority of the vaccines given on the NHS. We try and avoid it where possible, uh, baby jabs, and use vac vaccines that are mercury, that are aluminium-free, they're all mercury-free, thank goodness, uh, aluminium-free or with less aluminium where possible. But it's in the majority of the NHS vaccines and the six-in-one vaccine has a particularly high, high amount. Now, aluminium has no use to the body. It has no purpose, what, no useful, good purpose whatsoever in the body, um, unlike other, other um, um, uh, elements. And we do know that it can, you know, ultimately, the, the, the extreme version is it can cause brain damage. Now, I'm not suggesting for a minute that the amount of aluminium in vaccines in children in this country causes brain damage in most of them, but we know that it can. Uh, there is research suggesting that. We know that it's implicated in 
um, diseases such as autism, such as uh, multiple sclerosis, such as uh, chronic fatigue, such as ME, it may, may well have a role to play, a, a part role to play in many of these disorders. Um, and we don't know much about how it um, works in the, in the brain. It also stimulates the body into an autoimmune direction. This is a concern about vaccines in general and their relationship to autoimmune disease. It's not surprising that as a consequence of vaccines, one might get autoimmune diseases because you know, vaccines affect the immune system. That's what they're meant to do. Um, but aluminium seems to push the system more into an allergic autoimmune, autoimmune direction. And it, it's been uh, implicated in, in various uh, autoimmune disorders as well. The argument often given is that, well, the, vac the amount in vaccines is tiny. It's less than in formula milk or what you might have in, in, your, in your food and tea every day. Now that is true. However, it is a totally unfair comparison because we're not comparing like with like. What is in vaccines is injected into the body and 100% gets into the body. What we ingest in food or drink through our mouth, nearly all of it comes out the other end and is excreted. Only about one thousandth, only approximately one part in a thousand is absorbed by the body. So you cannot compare it. So if we look what's in vaccines and multiply it by by um, uh, a thousand, which is what we should do to, to make the comparison, we see that we're giving babies way above the recommended safe levels for, um, for, uh, for food and drink, which is of concern. What else in vaccines? Well, there's the total number of vaccines as well that I think is of concern. We're giving more and more and more and more without knowing the long-term consequences of this. Because vaccine studies are just done over a short period of time, over a relatively small number of people, certainly if we're looking to pick up rare side effects and rare events. And most vaccines have not been in use even for a generation really, let alone a lifetime. So we don't yet know what the long-term consequences of becoming in a way, a vaccine-dependent society is going to be. And that concerns me somewhat, which is why I prefer to be more cautious. I do see the benefits of vaccines, Rob, and I, they do save lives. That, that, that's without doubt. But just to keep adding them because they're there, even though the diseases that they protect are either very mild or impossible for a child to get, does not make sense to me. We need to use them prudently and cautiously and get maximum benefit out of them, but minimal risk. And what concerns me is that we're not having that debate at the moment. As I mentioned that when we first started talking, it really concerns me that we haven't got a debate at all. If one questions vaccines, if one questions the NHS policy, one's anti-vax, you're an anti-vaxxer. Well, one might as well be a Holocaust denier or a flat earther, it seems to me, which is absolutely crazy. 
And it's extremely unscientific as well, I should add. <laughs> Science is all about questioning and investigating um, uh, and, and, and not just accepting something at, 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 at face value. Um, and so it, 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 is of, it is of concern that we're, we're adding more and more with insufficient justification, in my view. Now, the chief medical officer said once that it's fine, you can add a thousand vaccines, give a thousand vaccines to a baby in one go, it's perfectly safe. And I thought, this is what the most senior doctor in the country is saying with a straight face. I think he really means it. I mean, this, this is, this to me is crazy. Um, you know, there is no debate. At the moment, we're giving, you know, about, about 30 vaccines to children um, by the time that they're, 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 they're one year of age. I hear no debate about, well, what's, what's the maximum number that would be reasonable? You know, 50, 100, 200. There is no discussion. It seems to be the more, the more the better. Vaccines are so good that the more we can have, um, the better. And, and that, that really worries me, Rob. It's, it's the direction that we're traveling in. Um, as much as anything else. Yeah, it definitely um, worries me. I mentioned to you before we started, you know, we're due to have our first child and I don't just want to go into this blindly and I've questioned many things over the past decade or so and I want to do my own investigation. And like you said, it's the, it's the polarization in the debate. It's either, it's not black or white. And it's something, it's, it's great that we're having this conversation and hopefully people will, will get, get a lot out of this. One thing I'm really interested to find out is if, if you're able to source cleaner, safer vaccinations, why is this not used as standard as the vaccine schedule in this country? Um, because the most proponents of vaccinations would argue that mine are not any better. In fact, they would argue that maybe they're less good because in order to vaccinate against the same number of diseases, doing it the way I am, I have to give more injections because I'm spreading them out more, I'm, 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 I'm giving them more, more gently. So there is no widely held acceptance that giving vaccines without aluminium, for example, is safer. Aluminium, there, there, there are no worries about aluminium in the same way that 20 years ago, there weren't worries about mercury. Um, but uh, it, may, it, 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 may, it may turn around. Also, there's the element of convenience. So the six-in-one vaccine is convenient for the NHS because it, they're giving they're just one injection. It's less of the nurse's time. It's easier to whack it in. And to be absolutely honest with you, Rob, most parents who don't question it and just want to go along and get their child's jabbed, it's convenient for them too. They like it. Um, most parents don't choose to have more visits. So the, those who come to us and uh, don't necessarily end up having more injections because we might leave some out and we can give less of some by, by, by giving some when they're a little bit older. But say coming to have more visits, they, they have a vested interest in it and they, they, they think it's worth doing. But for a lot of parents, it's, it's, they just want to get in, get in, get them whacked in and get out again and, and, and not worry about it. So certainly convenience um, plays, a, plays a large part as well. Yeah, that does make sense. You mentioned that on average, a baby might be given 
up to like 30 vaccinations in the first year through baby jabs what i know it's probably tailored a bit of a case by case sometimes but what would your numbers tend to be as you say i mean each schedule is done in, in individually taking into account the the, the, the the child's health the parents wishes the any family history um and 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 any other any other situation that we should take uh, account of however you're right that a lot of schedules are similar um and so a typical baby jab schedule would be three dtaps that's nine maybe a couple of pips a couple of uh, pcvs uh, might be about a dozen, a dozen vaccines uh, rather than 30, um, because we're concentrating on the diseases that uh, I or we feel after discussion are the most important to vaccinate against. And also because we're spreading some of them out, we're able to give less doses of some. Um, vaccines are more effective, interesting, there's very good evidence for this. Vaccines are more effective when given later and more spread out. So giving them at eight weeks of age, which is what the NHS does, they're, re they're relatively ineffective. That's not a very effective time to give them. Especially, interestingly, if mother has had the four-in-one whooping cough vaccine, because at eight weeks of age, those antibodies will still be swimming around in baby's bloodstream and will, to a large extent, fight off the vaccine without giving the baby's immune system the opportunity to to make um, make its own antibodies because mother's antibodies are doing the job so that's an added reason why why giving them later is more effective so we often like to wait until 12 weeks for example before 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 starting so there's very good evidence giving vaccines later is is more effective obviously the reason the nhs want to give them at eight weeks is to give the earliest op op possible protection that's what they're focusing on 100 percent um possibly to the detriment of other things, um, I feel. But um, that's very much um, what they're focusing on. Yeah, that's, that's really good to know. And like you say, you know, you're probably doing on average a third of what this normal schedule is, but also your ones are safer. You know, you are not having what we've discussed, you know, the heavy metals in there as well. So it's well, far less aluminium. They're probably about, probably about a quarter of the amount of aluminium, something like that in, in the typical shape that we give. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that's concerned me is, and it seems to be quite a, a rare occurrence in the, with the manufacturers and the pharmaceutical industry, is that the compensation that gets paid out, which, which is literally in the billions from what I understand in terms of vaccine injuries around the world, am I right in thinking that it's the governments that actually pay this compensation rather than the actual manufacturers of them? Uh, in most countries, I believe so, yes. Certainly in this country, Rob, that is certainly the case. Um, uh, and in the US, that is also the case, though it's interesting that in the US, I'll come back to the UK, in the US, the, manu the vaccine manufacturers contribute, so they indirectly pay, they contribute to the pot that the government holds and then awards uh, in vaccine damage payments. And interestingly, the contribution varies from vaccine to vaccine. So one can get an inkling of that from that 
of which vaccines the government feels are more likely to cause a serious problem than others. In this country, um, it it's purely comes from the, from the government. The payments are fairly paltry. I forget what they are now. Um, and you have to have, the child has to be severely disabled. Um, uh, and there, there, there are a lot of restrictions that makes it difficult to, difficult to claim. Not least, because what one, one has to prove on the balance of probabilities that a, a vaccine caused the problem. And herein lies a huge problem with vaccine reactions. Most serious reactions, well, probably all serious reactions, thankfully, are rare with vaccines. Most children will have vaccines and have no obvious discernible problems with them. So that they're, they're rare. And they can, of course, occur without the vaccine. So proving that it was the vaccine and not a coincidence, and we discussed that with the MMR and autism a while back, is very, very difficult. And there is, certainly amongst my colleagues, I'm afraid, my medical colleagues, there is a tendency to assume that if a reaction occurs after a vaccine, it's a coincidence, and not to assume that it's probably the vaccine. Which is odd, because as a GP, if I were to give a new medication to someone and they got a new symptom, I'd think, well, probably it's the medication. That's, let's, let's stop and see what happens. And, and if it goes, then that's good. And if we even try it again and it comes back, well, for sure, it's the, it's the, it's the medication. But with vaccines, there's a tendency to assume that it isn't. And I've even seen that with reactions that we know can occur, that are in the drug data sheet of the vaccine. And the serious reaction occurs, they'll go to hospital, and they're told, oh no, it's not possibly the vaccine. Well, hang on, the manufacturers have said this problem can happen. And they're told that it, that, that it can't happen. So there is this tendency to assume that vaccines are safe, and to assume that a problem is not caused uh, by a vaccine, more so than with medication. And that's, that's a huge problem as well. And so, of course, trying to prove it sufficiently to get compensation um, is very, very difficult. Compensation, children do get compensation uh, for various problems. And in fact, children have been given compensation for being made autistic after the MMR vaccine, <laughs> even though it's denied that it can, that it can cause that. Um, a very few children around the world in various countries have been, um, which makes you think, well, hang on, you know, someone obviously thinks it can cause this problem. So it is, it, it's a huge problem of, of trying to determine whether these rare side effects are a vaccine or not. And it's difficult because in order to determine whether a rare side effect is caused by a vaccine, same would apply to a drug, you would need a trial with tens of thousands, many tens of thousands of, of children, and they would have to be given the vaccine against a placebo, against nothing, and followed up for many years. And that's not going to happen. That's considered unethical, because we would, it is argued, be depriving the children of a, an essential medical intervention, i.e. the vaccine. So we never get these 
properly controlled trials, even when new trials are done into vaccines, they are not tested against the placebo, even in small numbers, a true placebo. A true placebo would be an injection just with some uh, water, with some saline, salty water, without anything. They're nearly always tested against another vaccine, which can, of course, cause its own reaction. So that doesn't, you know, so there isn't much difference. That doesn't prove there aren't any, it's not a placebo. It can cause the reactions in itself. Or sometimes they're, in, they're, they're, they're injected, um, they're compared with uh, water, which is that aluminium added. We just talked about aluminium. That causes its own problems. That's not a placebo. <laughs> That's a metal that we know can be toxic. So there are a lot of problems and a lot of criticisms of the way vaccine trials are done. Um, but it's a, it's a huge problem, and I don't know the answer. Yes, it is. Um, and when you're saying that, it reminds me of, I think it's the, it used to be a long-time editor-in-chief of the New England Medical Journal. Is it Dr. Marcia Angel? And I just put the quote down because I thought it was interesting, so I'll, I'll, I'll just read it out. It basically, basically says, it's simply no longer possible to believe much of the clinical research that is published or to rely on the judgment of trusted physicians or authoritative medical guidelines. He said he takes no pleasure in this conclusion, which he has reached slowly and reluctantly over his two decades as being the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. Now, that is a very respected publication, and I think that is pretty damning from, from that and on the actual wall, uh, pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical industry. And when you said earlier on about the approaches just to apply more and more vaccinations, it, it reminds me a little bit of how we treat farming. And it's like, you know, the way to get more crops and stuff is actually apply more fertilizers, more Roundup, more of them things. But actually, the long-term effects show that they can lead to, to other things. And it seems to be the case with this. And, and whether it's just down to because it's convenient to do this this way or because it's easier for the parents and it's cheaper for the, the NHS and stuff. But then you also have to question the money that is involved in that being made by these corporations and, and the fact that they are basically a profit-driven organization. You know, it, is it, is it how much of it is it based down that they are really that's just something that comes up for me so i'd like to maybe get your thoughts on that yes i'm familiar with the quote that you that you gave us rob and it is a fascinating one and you're right the new england journal of medicine is one of the most if not the most respected medical journals um, in the world and one of the problems is that a large part, if not the majority of medical research, and certainly this applies to vaccines as well, is paid for by the vaccine manufacturers. And their reason for doing this is to get their vaccines approved, licensed for use. And they don't want to look for trouble. Vaccine manufacturers are huge multinational corporations and their job is to make money, is to make a profit, like any large business for their shareholders and for their directors. I'm not suggesting for a minute that they are actively out to harm the health of mankind, but their primary role is not 
to improve the health of mankind, despite what their huge marketing and advertising budgets will tell you that interestingly, the, the marketing budgets of these large companies are larger than their research budgets. They will tell you, well, they need this huge amount to do research. They spend more on marketing than they do on research. And yes, they are making a lot of money from vaccines. Uh, they didn't used to. Vaccines were not big money, but then these blockbuster vaccines arrived on the scene. I think the pneumococcal vaccine was the first big one. Uh, that arrived on the scene in the late 20th century, the first billion dollar vaccine. Um, and then others came on, the HPV vaccine that I haven't talked about because it's not given to babies, maybe I should, um, is another one. The HPV vaccine is, is the human papillomavirus vaccine that is also known as the cervical cancer vaccine. That's been pushed hugely since its introduction. This vaccine, certainly in this country, it's arguable whether we need this, this, this vaccine. Cervical cancer actually is not common. Yes, women do die from it, and that's terrible. But brain cancer is more common than cervical cancer. How often do you hear about brain cancer? You don't, because there's no vaccine or blockbuster drug for it. Therefore, the, in fact, the, 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 the drug companies are not telling us a lot about it. Um, it, is, it is a terrible disease, um, and it'd be wonderful if we could stop it. However, this, this, this vaccine, of course, is not against, doesn't prevent cervical cancer necessarily. It prevents the virus that is associated with a large amount. The, 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 the association is not fully understood. And we, won't e we don't even know yet whether it can prevent cervical cancer, even though it's been used for over 10 years, because there's about a 20-year lag between becoming infected with the virus and developing cancer. This Merck, which is one of the two main manufacturers um, making, the, make, making a, a, an HPV vaccine, fascinatingly won a marketing award in the USA, an international marketing award for, I quote, developing a market out of thin air. In other words, it's questionable whether there was a need for this vaccine at all, but they created a need. It's what they do with drugs as well. They've got a new drug, they create a need. They, they develop a disorder for which it would be good to, in, in, in sort of psychological, psych psychiatric problems, that, that's, that's done an awful lot, but, um, but I digress. But it is a huge problem in that, yes, there is a conflict of interest here because the the companies that are funding most of the research are those that are there to make a profit from the, the vaccine or the drug they are researching. And we know beyond any doubt, there is so many papers published on this, that research funded by the manufacturer is more likely to show a benefit from that product than research that is individually funded. Maybe that shouldn't surprise us, but of course, if it were totally honest research, that wouldn't be the case, but it's not. And they have, they have, um, they have rights over this research. And if they, they don't like the results, they may well just hide it under the, shove it under the carpet, hide it away, 
um, and, uh, and, uh, and, and forget about it. But it is worrying that the drug manufacturers, the pharmaceutical manufacturers have such a huge influence on, on my profession in general, and this is not just with vaccines. You know, they hold medical symposia with you know, educational meetings. They, 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 they claim that they spend a lot of money educating us. What they're really trying to do is to sell us their products and get us to prescribe their products, if I'm, if I'm totally, I mean, that may sound a bit cynical, but that is their, that is their primary role. Um, there is no question about it. So it is, it is very worrying. Um, you know, people have suggested that all that, that um, vaccines should be, all be made by, um, by government, uh, government-owned uh, um, companies, um, and that research should all, all be done by, uh, by, um, uh, by government-funded uh, or, 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 you know, university, maybe individually funded um, I'm trying to say not 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 funded by the big manufacturers who tend to make make uh, make the money, it's, and it's a problem for universities as well, because a lot of the research is done at universities, and you may think that's well that's independent, but they depend on the drug companies' funds to keep their projects going, to fund their labs. They have huge influence, and they have influence over over um the. Uh, <clears throat> uh, parents uh, parents bodies and. Uh, societies to do with diseases. Interesting story, if I may tell you, about the meningitis B vaccine. That was the vaccine, if you remember, quite a long time ago, I talked about the meningitis vaccines that I would recommend and those that I wouldn't recommend. And the meningitis B vaccine was one that I had concerns about. It's the most recently introduced one in this country. So the meningitis B vaccine, uh, this must have been around, we're talking around 10 years ago, that sort of time, I forget that, that, that date. The Joint Committee of Vaccination and Immunization, which is the body, um, the sort of governmental body um, that looks at vaccines and decides what to recommend and what not to recommend. Basically, if they say we should have this vaccine, the government introduces it. If they say, no, we shouldn't, they don't. And they obviously have to look at the, the, the cost and the benefit and the risk and the safety and, and, and everything. And they looked at this meningitis B vaccine that had been made, and this was so expensive. They just thought, well, you know, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's just costing too much to save a life. It's, it's just not worth it. Um, you know, um, so we, we cannot approve its introduction. The funds would be better used elsewhere in the NHS. And so they advised that it wasn't introduced. This, of course, created a furor. And so the meningitis societies, they suddenly got onto this. And of course, where do they get all their funds from? Well, from, from the, the drug manufacturers, of course. Um, they got, you know, people, mothers saying, how can, you, how can you deprive our children of a meningitis vaccine? You're going to allow our children to die from meningitis. This is absolutely outrageous. And in particular, there was a Facebook posting, I think, by a mother put out, it was a picture of her child dying from group B meningococcal meningitis, the vaccine, that, the, the, the disease that this vaccine does offer some, not a lot, but some protection against. And of course, this, you know, it was a horrendous picture and it was a horrendous story. And in the end, there was so much political pressure for the government to introduce this vaccine, even though it was not cost effective. You know, money would be spent, better spent elsewhere. There was huge pressure that they changed the complete goalposts of how they 
how they judge whether something is cost effective. So they added things like, well, we maybe we should allow allow include in here the, the, the amount that the NHS is going to be sued for children who die from meningitis B because we haven't got a vaccine. Um, maybe we should include, so all these other things they decided to add to the mix in order to justify its introduction. So in other words, they, they, they weren't being objective, they were totally swayed by persuasion. And as part of that, of course, was the campaign by the vaccine manufacturer, because here was a vaccine that they had made that was going to make them a lot of money. And of course, now it's used uh, in, in, in the UK and is making the manufacturer a lot of money. Yes, it is. Um, that would lead us quite nicely into talking about, obviously we are talking now in a very strange time in 2020, um, which has been um, like no other. And, you know, we have gone through, we're experiencing, you know, COVID-19 and this appears to be quite a um, lot of pressure for a rapid introduction for some sort of vaccine. So I think it was Bill Gates that said, the world can't go back to normal until a vaccination has been produced and potentially the entire population has been given it. What are your thoughts on the actual attempts to, to create this vaccination? And can you see, like you said before, that it would make much more sense if these were run by the government and it was done with their funding. Rather, it seems like there's a bit of an arms race um, underway and it's almost just the first past the post. And like you said earlier on, um, can we potentially trust that the trials would have been done properly if particularly, like you say, the people who run the trials are the, are the people that actually create the vaccine in the first place? Uh, yes, it's interesting, isn't it? That when, when we first talked about a vaccine, of course the world was going to get together and we were going to work with everyone and all collaborate. And I knew from the very start, that's nonsense. Each, each you know, huge manufacturer was going to bust their asses to try and be the first one to, to get a vaccine, to, to, you know, because he has mega bucks here. Um, so, so it was always going to be a race um, to try and get a vaccine on, on the market. Um, and of course, it's, it's impossible to comment. Uh, my parents ask me when I have conversations, you know, oh, what do you think about a COVID-19 vaccine? You know, and, you know, there isn't a COVID-19 vaccine or 19 vaccine, or there might be Sputnik V in Russia, but I know nothing about that. But, um, you know, there isn't one that we know anything about at the moment, and therefore it's impossible to comment. Um, there are lots of different ones being made in lots of different ways. Um, and I'm sure that there will be one, more than one, probably several released during next year. I think that's very, very likely. And they might be great. They might be good. Um, and certainly, you know, there is a huge call for it. And it may be, I might say something about Bill Gates if we have time. It may be that we won't get COVID-19 under control with, until we have a vaccine. Of course, that's possible. It may burn itself out as other pandemics have done without a vaccine. That is also possible. We don't know. We are learning. We're on a steep uphill curve with this, with this, um, with this virus. We just don't know. Um, all that I would say is that I would be apprehensive about any vaccine coming out quite as quickly 
In other words, in any, that next year, this would certainly apply to as one of these vaccines would be. In other words, they'll have gone through maybe 12 months of research from beginning to before it's being offered on a large scale. That is an incredibly small time. And uh, I would be, as I say, nervous that there had not been sufficient testing into, into side effects. And certainly by definition, there isn't any long-term um, effects there and long-term um, um, safety studies because, because of the short, short period of time. Um, so I'd be nervous about that. If I could say something about Bill Gates, if I may, who is, is you know, widely praised for having founded um, Gavi, the Global Alliance for Vaccination and Immunization, I think it stands for, that has funded the giving of many vaccines all around the world in underdeveloped countries. Um, and it's considered to be a very good thing, and to a degree, to a degree it is. But it's also posed a lot of problems for countries in that here's, here's Mr. Gates, who's saying, you know, you should, have, you should have this vaccine, you know, we'll give it to you free for two years. Let's say the pneumococcal vaccine, for example, that was the first blockbuster one, it's an expensive one. So they're giving it to these countries free for a couple of years, but then you're on your own. They don't fund it forever. And so these relatively impoverished countries are left having to fund a vaccine when their money might be better spent in providing clean water or providing some other more essential um, um, uh, health, public health intervention necessary in the vaccine. So it's, they control the agenda rather too much. And doctors have complained about that and said, look, 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 we know we don't necessarily need this vaccine that you're wanting to give us. But of course, if it's offered free to start with, then it'll be taken up. And there's also another fascinating aspect about vaccines that was discovered in research in, in, in Africa. And this is amazing and alarming in a way is that certain vaccines appeared to do more harm than good. In other words, children who were given certain vaccines were more likely to die than children who were given other vaccines. The counteract of that the counter is that certain vaccines seem to have more benefits than just protecting against the disease they were designed to protect. So this, this is now being known as the non-specific effects of vaccines, which shows how little we really understand about it. But scandalously, you know, some vaccines have been given to children in Africa, which is more likely to make them die than by not vaccinating them. That effect is probably not happening here because thankfully we're much healthier and much stronger. The World Health Organization don't want to know because that will undermine their whole, their whole belief the whole belief system will be will be taken uh, taken away from them. But it just but this 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 non non intended effect, this non specific effect of vaccines that we're now we're now learning about is is fascinating. And it's two sides of the coin. Um, to be fair, I'm not just knocking vaccines. There are some vaccines that seem to offer more benefit and protect against more diseases and and than just from protecting the disease that they're meant to protect. So, you know, we're just learning. 
We still know little about vaccines and, and how they work. We're on a, on, on, on a, on a steep learning curve going up there. Um, but that is yet another reason, I think, is to proceed with caution and with not, not with the gung-ho cavalier attitude that most, uh, most of our governments feel seem to have. Yes, I um, I agree. And just on, um, I'm glad you spoke about Bill Gates. And um, from the mainstream media, he's um, <clears throat> portrayed in in some ways as um, you know a, a savior for for mankind. Um, and he, you know, he may have good intentions. <clears throat> but I also do know that I have heard him in an interview to say that for every dollar that he'd invested in vaccines, he's made twenty times back that amount. So it, it's just obviously more at play it's you know with this money involved there and there's um this control and like you said the money could definitely be invested in other places and that's something that's frustrating me a little bit throughout covid that when anyone ever comes out doctors scientists talk about other ways of helping vitamin c vitamin d um and other other forms that we can be doing to build our immune system up, it doesn't seem to be getting anywhere near the attention that it deserves. You could say it's because those things are very inexpensive. They can't be um, patented like the vaccines as such. But it just frustrates me to, to see that, to think there's so many things that we could all be doing on an individual basis to improve our own health and well-being without us being fearful of catching something. I believe there's hundreds of thousands of viruses everywhere all the time type thing. You know, it's, this is the way we live in the world. And I don't want to be walking around living in fear, wearing a mask for the next so many years of the fear of what may or may not happen. Um, so yeah, maybe get your, your thoughts on, on some of that. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. Um, you're, you're moving on to a, a, an area I don't claim to have a great deal of knowledge, knowledge about, um, which, is, which is preventive health through, through, through good living, through possibly through vitamin supplementation and that, and that sort of thing. And you're right, I think that the, there is not a lot of money to be made from that. And therefore, the research isn't done, as, 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 we, as we talked about. The, the research, a lot of the research is done by the pharmaceutical companies in order to try and get a product approved and, and, and marketed and therefore to bring them in money. Um, and if the product is, 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 is off a license, you know, like a vitamin, I mean, you know, unless they package it up in some, in some special way in order to patent it, uh, there's little to be done from, from doing the research into it. I mean, obviously with COVID, there is some research into treatments that are less off patent. I mean, dexamethasone has been found to be helpful. That is a non-patented uh, steroid drug that has been found to be very helpful um, in, in, in reducing the uh, death rate in those with severe COVID-19. But that doesn't answer what you're saying is that that's full fine. Yeah, you know, I might have that if I'm on a ventilator, that's okay. But you know, I'm, I'm, I'm young and fit and how can I prevent getting it in the first place? Um, how can we stay healthy in, 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 in the first place? And of course, there's, there's insufficient research into that. I totally agree with you. You know, our, our, our National Health Service was founded um, post-Second World War with the assumption that it's going to cost us a lot of money, but actually everyone's going to come so healthy with this that it's, it'll, it'll reduce over time. 
Ooh, <laughs> I wish, I wish. That was a, a wonderful but naive belief. Sadly, it's not a national health service. It's a, it's a national disease service. Um, in that, in that, you know, we get the, the the amount that is spent on on preventive is is an absolute minuscule minuscule amount, um, and uh, we ought to concentrate. I agree with you on 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 healthy living. I mean, the lip service is paid; it's paid to to, to diet and uh, obviously not smoking and not drinking too much and all those things. That is, you know, there, there is that's not ignored completely. But I agree with you, we could do a lot more looking at how to stay healthy um, rather than just concentrating on treating the diseases. But again, as, as you suggested, I think money plays a large part in that. Um, just on that in terms of um, staying healthy, um, with, say, young children, mums and dads, um, you know, I, I've heard you maybe potentially discuss the, the benefits of probiotics in increasing the kind of the effectiveness of sort of the, um, the protection in vaccines. Is, is that the case? Yes, probiotics are an interesting one. In, um, and uh, we, we do know from research that probiotics, interestingly, increase the effectiveness of vaccines. Whether they make them safer, whether they reduce side effects, we don't know. There is no proof of that. Um, but there is proof that they increase the effectiveness. We, the, the, the research did not look at individual brands. It pooled them all together into what's called a meta-analysis. So it, so it threw all the brands together. Um, so we can't, you know, the, 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 we can't pick out an individual brand because parents ask, ask me, well, which brand should I give? And I say, I don't know, I'm afraid. We, we, uh, the research looked at probiotics in general. So yes, it's interesting that there is research to show that probiotics increase the effectiveness of vaccines, whether they reduce uh, side effects or not, um, we don't know. That's good to know. Um, you know, it's been uh, truly fascinating getting all that insight for you. And I would just like to bring this thought about for you, like I'm really interested to see, like where do you find the actual courage and conviction within you, you know, to stand up publicly and speak so, so openly about this, you know, about this debate and, and, you know, you are really, a, you know, I, I say about this podcast, about people doing good in the world and you're 100% in that category, but the upper echelons, I'd say that. And it's, it's amazing to see that you have um, that willpower really. And there's some other doctors that I've spoken to that are willing to stand up and, and I know that there's many that aren't, even though they may have similar beliefs to you, um, but they shy away. So I'm interested to know what, what drives you to have that, that you know, determination? Probably sheer bloody mindedness, if you forgive my language. Um, if, one, if one finds something that, that concerns one, I, I, want, you know, I can't just shut up about it. Um, so, you know, as soon as I discovered what I did about vaccines, I had to, I had to well, A, offer the service to my patients and then, and then write about it and, and, and share about it. Um, particularly when debate, there's so little, as I've mentioned already, there is so little debate that it's, it's, it's doubly important that we just have the debate um, out there and, and, and that we, we, we do keep talking about the benefits and the risks of vaccines. Um, it, is, it is so important. I think some doctors, to be fair to them, will risk who are particularly hospital employees risk losing their jobs if they say something that, that, their, that their managers don't like. 
as a GP, I was in a better position because I was always, um, we're self-employed as GPs, we're employed in a, in a, in a different way in the NHS. Um, and, uh, and then once I left the NHS, which I did now um, about 10 years ago, it, you know, I became sort of a doctor and, 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 and was responsible to the General Medical Council. But that gave me also um, a greater freedom in order to be able to, to, um, to say what I feel was, was, was right. And uh, yes, I just think that it, uh, the debate has to be, has to be made. It's, it's, I talked about black and white. I mean, I'm accused by some doctors of being an anti-vaxxer. I've been written up in the British Medical Journal as being an anti-vaxxer. For goodness sake, I run a vaccination clinic. How can I be an anti-vaxxer? It makes no sense at all. I'm accused of being an anti-vaxxer just because I question the way the NHS are doing it and the way some of my colleagues are doing it. And the same goes for all, all, all the mums and dads who come to see me. Um, they all want to protect their child, but they're just unsure about the NHS way. Do we really need to give quite so many? You know, is it really safe to give them all together? Um, is there, is there a, a, another way of doing it? They're not anti-vaxxers. There's, 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 I, I read all the time in the papers about anti-vaxxers. I've, I've never come across an anti-vaxxing movement, ever. There's just an increasing number of parents who individually are not want to do the best for their child and they're not convinced that doing it the way that the authorities the nhs establishment advising is is the best way so we just need to be able to continue talking about it in public as we are now rob and i thank you for giving me this opportunity to do that no and i'm absolutely grateful as well and i can just imagine the people that would this can help, you know, to make more informed choices, to, yeah, to, to do their own research, to, to question things, to know that there's different routes for them to go down. Um, so in terms of, do you, do you see a potential for the industry as a large change in over time? Um, or or do, you, do you, I'm interested to see what hope you have, have for that. I wish. Um... I can't say I feel very positive at the moment. Um, the big multinational global companies have become more and more powerful and big pharma sits in that camp. You know, they have, they have bigger budgets than some small countries. So they've become hugely powerful. Um, and the hugely powerful individuals such as Bill Gates um, have greater wealth than some small countries. Um, and because I don't hear, even in my, even in, you know, within my own profession, in the literature, in the research, it's only a small minority that is looking at the problems. There, there, are, there are several, there are a few researchers around the world looking at, looking at aluminium, for example, you know, but only very few publishing research looking at the problems with, with, with aluminium, which is getting published, it is getting out there. But compared with the huge volumes of the manufacturer funded research that is there to promote the vaccines to get them licensed, it's a very, very small amount. 
I suppose if it is going to change, hopefully it'll change, it'll like all real move, it'll be from the bottom up. It'll be parents questioning. And I think that is happening in all countries in the world. Parents are questioning. This is what is described as the anti-vax movement, which is not an anti-vax movement. There is no great movement, or if there is, I haven't come across it. Um, but there are an increasing number of parents, as more and more vaccines are being added to the schedules, who are saying, all, globally this is, all around the world, is this the right way to go? So there are dissenting voices in, in, in all over the world. And ultimately, if parents speak out loud enough and object loud enough, then hopefully, though the rest of us will, will hear that and, uh, and um, act on it. Yeah, I, I fully agree with that, that we have to um, have these conversations and we have to speak up. And because I do understand that there's certain places around the world where, you know, vaccinations are becoming mandatory. I know that it's maybe in California and I think in, in Australia, the flu vaccine has been made. And do you imagine that might be coming, coming our way at some point? Uh, it concerns me, that possibility. Um, I do know that at the moment those of my colleagues, medical colleagues who are or very much promote vaccination, who are there, there at the top and, and deciding national policy, are against compulsory mandatory vaccination because they feel it could be counterproductive. Parents will say, hang on, why are you suddenly having to make this compulsory? What's going on? Uh, um, and they feel that, that the, 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 the British public might react against it. Um, uh, and, and it could be counterproductive. And they're certainly not of a view at the moment to do that. But you are right that it is becoming increasingly mandatory around the world to have vaccines throughout the US. Different states have different opt-out clauses, which are becoming tighter and tighter. Italy, France now, it is mandatory to have um, a number of vaccines, quite a lot, uh, in order to get into school, that sort of thing. So unfortunately, it is moving in that direction, um, which, is, which is another worry, another concern. Yeah, it is a concern, and I understand that. Is it Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and the Children's Health Defense over in America have even started to put like claims and suing universities now for um, mandating the flu shot and stuff. And, and like you said, that I can... It's, it's heartening in some ways to hear that the people that you know in the industry that actually kind of support them don't want it to be mandatory because they think it would kick up more of a fuss. And I think because there is, and I think through COVID, more people are questioning the, the narrative that uh, people are being told. And, and as we said, a lot of the alternative, healthy, natural ways of dealing with stuff is being suppressed. And I think more people are... Um, you know, asking those questions that if something like that did happen, I think there would be such um, such a protest about it, really, um, with, you know, probably millions in this country, you know, um, would would attempt to stand up. And so, yeah, it's um, we we shall see. But like you say, it's great that we're having this conversation. Hopefully many people will listen to this and share this as well so they can get the better understanding of stuff. And for me, what gives you such credibility is the fact that, like you say, if some people are saying that you're anti-vax, how can you be anti-vax when you actually have a vaccination clinic? 
you know, and the fact that you were really like the, the voice that you've got and the, and the level of experience, you know, no one can, from, in my mind, no one can possibly question that. Um, so if someone was listening to this and they were like, okay, I don't want to go down the, the traditional route with NHS and they wanted to potentially come and work with, um, with baby jabs, what is the kind of, what's the process for them finding out more about you and potentially booking a consultation? Uh, well, go, go to our website, uh, Baby Jabs website, babyjabs.co.uk. Um, and uh, it's a website I have put together completely myself. I have complete control over it. And uh, there is information about us, about me, um, about the team, um, the clinical and, uh, and non-clinical team, and, uh, and about, crucially, about the diseases and about the vaccines themselves with, uh, with, a, with a few links. There's nothing like the information that there is in my book, of course, but there, but there is some links also, direct links to, to some of the papers um, giving more important information on, on, the, uh, on, on the benefits or the risks of the, of the vaccines. Uh, I offer consultations um, in which I put together dedicated schedules I'm doing that all by telephone at the moment, um, rather than going into the clinic. The clinic is still running, and uh, um, my 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 nurse is 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 working there um, during the week. Um, so that that's it's still operating normally. We've got longer appointment times to allow for social distancing. Um, uh, you don't have to have a consultation with me to have a vaccine. You can just book in to have a vaccine if you know exactly what you want to have. But most uh, who are doing things very differently prefer to talk through it all and, and then we can put together an individual schedule for, uh, for your child. Um, and that can be done yeah, through the website, the phone numbers on there, and the clinics based in, in London, in central London. And is that where people would have to come for, to have them just in London or other places? Uh, it, it, there is one other clinic we work closely with in Manchester, which is, uh, which is another option to receive the vaccines. So then there's, there's two places you can get the vaccines, London and Manchester. Well, that seems to be on the basis of them. They're pretty accessible to generally most people, you know, within an hour or so's drive. Um, you mentioned earlier on, um, we're kind of, you know, coming to, to wrapping this up and um, it's been absolutely phenomenal talking to you. But you, meant, um, you mentioned about you're into alternative therapies as well. Um, you mentioned that before we started speaking. Um, is, is there anything that you'd like to, to, to talk about in, in that instance before we wrap up well i suppose when i when i first became a doctor when i first trained to be a doctor i always had a i always thought that there was more to medicine than just what i'd learned at medical school and western medicine but i had this dream um partly um initiated by a trip i made to india before i went to medical school um uh, that I'd want to learn then I'd, I'd go to medical school um, and learn Western medicine. Great. Then I'd go to India and learn Ayurvedic medicine. I'd go to China and learn Chinese medicine and do all these wonderful things. And then I'd have such great knowledge. I could be a wonderful doctor. Um, of course, it like, <laughs> like so many dreams in life, it didn't quite come like that. Um, and instead, I, I ended up having a, having my first my first child uh, soon after qualifying. Um, and I talked about him with the whooping cough issue, um, and uh, that rather prevented uh, any any travelling around the world. But instead, I did study. I, I spent a long time studying acupuncture, and I studied homeopathy in in London. Um, and I used 
homeopathy and acupuncture and herbal medicine in a, in a relatively simplistic way. And also a little bit about what you talked about, the vitamins and supplementation, that sort of thing in my general practice. So I tried to be a holistic GP and, and, and put everything together as much as possible so that I wasn't clearly, I was practicing Western medicine as well, but I was practicing all these other things as well. Of all those things, interesting, acupuncture is the one that most impressed me. Um, and I, I, I carried on doing that um, sometime after I, I left the NHS as well at a clinic again in, in the city of London. Um, I was very impressed with some of the things that could do with some, with some conditions. And it's not surprising, really. It's a mode of treatment that's been in use for 2000 years. That, of course, doesn't prove that it works. But Chinese aren't stupid. And would they really use something for 2000 years if it was completely useless? Um, we... What we were doing as doctors 200 years ago, we've completely given up on now <laughs> as being completely useless, um, interestingly. So, uh, so um, uh, acupuncture impressed me very, very much and I, I, I did that for a while. Homeopathy, I'm, I'm on the fence of, if I'm totally honest. Um, uh, it's, what I like about homeopathy is it's harmless. Um, and it's certainly better to give homeopathy than lots of the Western drugs that we give for things when we're just treating symptoms that can have nasty side effects. So that's great. Um, I'm, I'm on the fence about how much benefit it really does. Of course, the orthodox is taken a big hit from the orthodox establishment over recent years because it's got nothing active in it, you know. Um, I remember I heard a... a, a, a uh, a doctor, pharma, a pharmacological doctor, uh, saying, well, look, we can't possibly explain how this works. And so, so it must be nonsense. It can't work. I thought, how arrogant. Because you can't explain it. You think it doesn't work. You're making the assumption that we understand how everything works now, <laughs> um, which is crazy. Of course, not, you know, if it does work, homeopathy, it works on an energy level because there, it doesn't have any atoms of the original substance left, and that, which, is, which is fascinating. And we may well discover things about that in the future. But certainly it did, this, this, this journey into other forms did show me that there's a lot more to medicine other than what we learned in medical school. That's really interesting to hear that, um, you know, you have you've expanded your view of things and the things you've been interested in. And when you talk about that, it makes me, you know, particularly people who say, well, you can't, um, how can you justify it? Or how can, you know, there's no evidence, but it's the same with the, you know, the placebo effect, like, you know, the power of the mind, um, you know, to heal ourselves just goes to show. And the placebo effect is a known thing within the medical industry. So which. I think some of them try to like dismiss it some ways, but there's obviously more than meets the eye to this, to this um, thing. And hopefully us talking about it and many other people talking about it, that we're going to have a bit of a paradigm shift throughout the next decade. And maybe COVID could be, and this could be a, a potential for a bit of an awakening and, and to steer us down healthier, better paths. And yeah, it's been amazing talking to you um, today, Richard. It really has. And um, I know it's gone on quite long, but I could probably talk for another few hours. But um, I think this is this is a perfect uh, time to kind of uh, bring it to a close. And I just want to say uh, I really appreciate what you're doing. Um, I'll include all the links that you've spoken about in terms of, you know, your website, how people can book and also your, your book that is out there as well, how people can, can get hold of that. But um, I really appreciate your time today. Uh, Richard, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I've enjoyed talking to you, Rob.
there we go, guys. Another episode um, with Dr. Richard Halverson. Um, for, hopefully, you enjoyed it. Truly um, fascinating, man. Fascinating story. So much information, so much important information that I think many of us um, should be open to, to hearing. And it makes, when I listen to him, it, it makes absolute perfect sense. And in some ways, it does highlight the issues that we do have today through the media and through the uh, certain organizations that do have a lot of power. And there seems to be a lot of vested interests and there is plenty of money to be made. Um, so hopefully the more of us are having these conversations, um, the better, because I think it's important to question stuff. You know, I think it's important to stand up for stuff. You know, if you, I heard that term that, you know, you either, yeah, you, you know, you either stand for something or you'll fall for anything. Um, so yeah, if you've enjoyed this, you know, please share it with a friend. If you know someone who is having a baby soon or is pregnant, has got young children, potentially share this with them as well. Um, because and I know, I know it certainly triggers a lot of people, people who maybe have gone down the traditional route might listen to this and be maybe um, get triggered, offended, uh, get defensive of it, maybe because they believe in the course of action that they've done, and you know that's you know that's all all well and good, but I think there's definitely a um, there's a desire for this now, particularly now. I think it's uh, really important. So anyway, guys, if you have enjoyed it as well, you can subscribe to my YouTube channel. You could leave me a review on Apple. You could become a member on my Patreon page for as little as a price of a cup of coffee each month to help me continue to put out these episodes and interviews with inspiring people. So anyway, guys, until next time, have a good one. Mm-hmm.